I didn't get in to see the movie that I wanted to see this week because it was just too busy. The movie I speak of is Dunkirk, which dramatically shows the events of the evacuation of the British and some French forces from the coast of France uh, back in, the, in late May of 1940. Uh, of course, my father was a child of World War II, and I often heard stories about events like Dunkirk. And also, of course, I love history, so I checked into it myself. After the declaration of war between Germany and France, Britain in August 1939, nothing happened for many months. It was so slow that many people called it a phony war, as France and Britain were sitting on the borders of France waiting for something to happen. At the most unexpected place, the Germans came crashing through in May of 1940. The French lines at the most unexpected point, driving the majority of the French in a stupor south into their country and driving the shocked British in, into an ever smaller perimeter on the beach. They were pushed back toward the sea. Finally, the full might of the German army supported by the German Air Force in its full power, surrounded the beleaguered British at the channel town of Dunkirk. 400,000 soldiers, mainly from the UK, were stranded on a sandy beach between the English Channel and the full might of Hitler's Blitzkrieg. There was no way out and no weapons with which to fight. Surely these troops would be captured or destroyed. Now, you wouldn't see this in the movie, but something took place that was very interesting on May 26th of 1940. As the war was going increasingly poorly on French soil, the British king, George VI, called for a national day of prayer. The prayer was to turn, call the people to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance and to plead for divine help. Church bells rang all across the country and in many places in the Commonwealth, including Canada. As many people, many people have seen pictures of the hordes of people headed to church and heeded the call to pray. A call also went out for every vessel, every boat, every ship that could be garnered on the south coast of England to go and help join an armada that would save these men. At the same time, the weather suddenly cooperated. First, a storm inland made the German air force be grounded so that they could not have any further attacks for a while on the beaches near Dunkirk. Then a great calm that had not been seen in a generation descended upon the usually quite stormy channel. Strangely also, Hitler and his generals held back from pushing the boundaries of that little area narrower and narrower. They held back. He had an overwhelming force but did not use it in those days. So the unequipped men on the beach were evacuated over the course of nine days, expecting to save some 50,000 people. Instead, some 340,000 out of 400,000 men were returned to the shores of England. With no weapon but prayer, the debacle of the battles of 1940 turned into a deliverance of epic proportions. 
Now, evacuation is no way to win the war. But it's a way to allow for another day's fight. The king, the prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and the vast majority of the nation and indeed the commonwealth praised the creator God of the universe in that day for his deliverance. Now, I am certain that in many areas of our life, that the forces that stand against us as believers are growing stronger and stronger so that we feel there is both no way to battle them and certainly no way to defeat them. The great reformer Martin Luther expressed serious concerns about the effects of the world, the flesh, and the devil that seem to be imminent, overwhelming threats to faith and our families and our livelihoods and potentially our existence. The pressure to go along with the world's swift flight to the standards of evil and sexuality, to do business as everybody else was doing it, or to go bankrupt, to let go of your privilege to train up your children in godliness, to live publicly and openly as a Christian and not be slandered as an evil, hateful bigot, all seem to be unstoppable. What are we to do? How are we to fight? Well, Pastor Les, Pastor Wes, you're Les, the other guy is Wes, has led us through a study of the book of Acts seeing how the Holy Spirit had established and developed the early church, growing in amazing ways. In the course of this incredible history, we have seen the opposition to the growing church grow and spread in ever greater menace. There was the concern of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. There was uh, the arrest of all of the apostles and their escape in chapter 5. Soon a deacon is stoned to death for his stand against the Jewish leaders and for Christ, in chapter 7. This scatters the majority of the church. Then a Jewish leader takes it upon himself to personally eradicate the church. Until, praise the Lord, the Lord steps into his life and saves him by his grace on the road to Damascus, in chapter 9. The behavior of the church finally gets the whole of Jerusalem up in arms when in chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts, Gentiles are actively encouraged to accept the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Messiah. The full fury of the opposition to Christ's church is about to be vented through the government leader, Herod. Herod Agrippa I. Now, If you have closed your Bibles, turn back, if you would, to pages 780, 781 in your pew Bible or Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. And I want us to notice several things there. It's my desire this morning to point out three things from the story of the incredible deliverance of Peter from the grip of Herod. There's going to be a couple other things I'll point out as well that you'll see on the overhead. The three things I want to point out from the passage in particular are these. The seemingly overwhelming power that evil has to accomplish its goal. The seemingly overwhelming power that evil has. It's the first one. The second thing is the only weapon that Christians have. The only weapon that Christians have to counteract evil at its worst. And the third is our usual reaction when the weapon accomplishes its task. 
So let's notice, first of all, the seemingly overwhelming power that evil has. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, the first part. It seems that again and again in the Gospels, Christ and his church run up against a personification of self-adulation and excessive pride towards God, to defy God. The Greeks call this hubris. We're speaking of a figure that sees himself as the embodiment of glory in himself and even a sense of deity that cannot stand competition with the true God and his people. Now, remember back in the story of Christ's birth, the nativity. Herod the Great ruled a large portion of the Bible lands. And he wanted to glorify himself. This extremely vain man rebuilt the temple gloriously, rebuilt the city of Jerusalem amazingly. So paranoid, though, was he for his place as king. We read in history that he even killed his own children and his wife to secure his place. Now, you remember, I'm sure, that this man was the man who tried to trick the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 into telling him where Jesus was in Bethlehem. And when they figured out his trick, he sent his soldiers in to kill all of those children under the age of two who were boys in Bethlehem. Herod eventually died, of course. As we come to Acts chapter 12, we see history repeating itself in the same family. This is the time of the grandson, Herod Agrippa I, who by manipulation has acquired basically the same area of sovereignty that his grandfather had. Instead of paranoia, this Herod uses flattery and people-pleasing to get his position of love from the Jewish leaders and the people of Jerusalem. This is what it says in the passage. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I said unleavened bread is the week-long feast that culminates in Passover. So those two things go together, unleavened bread and Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. In order to please the Jews, Herod Agrippa takes to persecuting Christians in Jerusalem who have not as yet been scattered because of the persecution that was sparked by Stephen's execution. Sensing that the crowd was pleased, Herod goes for more. He he arrests Peter during the Passover feast. Peter is handed to four groups of four guards, placed in the Tower of Antonia and prepared for trial after the feast. Jewish leaders didn't like having their feast times messed up by things like arrests and convictions. There would be a show trial after Passover. They would arrive, of course, at the predetermined uh, verdict of guilty, and Peter would be, like James, executed. The latter verse seems to indicate that Peter was behind several sets of guards and gates, and chained in his cell to two guards as 
he sleeps. Now, if you'd only read to there the first part of verse 5 of chapter 12, what were Peter's chances of escaping, of not being executed? Between Zilch and Manitol, he was going nowhere but to the executioner. Is there any possibility of rescue or deliverance? Now, Herod had heard about Acts chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, the, the, the story of the apostles being arrested and then being delivered when the Sanhedrin had, had uh, arrested them. He was not putting anything to chance. By tradition and law, if Peter got away this time, the guards who were responsible for him were going to be killed. There was no way out. Now, as we watch events in our world, we wonder at the implicit and explicit power that is held by the forces of Antichrist. Our ability as Christians to speak our health heartfelt views are made light of or even reviled by those who hate Christ. The world seems to appreciate the dark slavery of the worst forms of Islam more than they love the sweet glory of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The drive for the rights of LGBT community in our city, in our country, and in North America seems to be able to run roughshod over the standards and rights of any who stand in their way. Sexual mores seem to be perverted such that even in places like magazines for preteens and high school lunch hours, like our neighbor in Lloyd Bing High School, the grossest forms of sexual perversion are taught to our kids, and we have no say in the involvement the world and its educational institutions decry our belief in the scriptures, in the God of creation, and the depraved nature of humans in desperate need of the gospel of saving grace through Jesus Christ. Divorce and separation divide us and cut us out from the decisions that need to be made with regard to our children and the state by its power. And they hold the power of life and death over us. And we talked about Dr. Elliot, we've been praying for more than a year about his delivery, and it, and it seems, naturally speaking, that Boko Haram will never let him go. The power of evil, looking at it naturally, is unstoppable and overwhelming. Now, the old comment, you can't fight City Hall, is no longer true. But you surely can't be expected to fight this, can you? The desire of the people of Jerusalem and their leaders was against Peter. The heart of Herod, the Rome-appointed king, was against Peter. The tower of Antonia was an impregnable fortress. The gates were closed and locked against Peter. The 16 guards were watching Peter in shifts. The four guards kept close contact, and Peter was chained not just to one soldier, but to two. That's hopeless, I'd say. Now, as some of you might know, I'm a fan of Star Trek. One of the movies I loved of the series was the first one that featured the characters from the Next Generation TV series. It's called Star Trek Generations. In it at one point, Captain Jean-Luc Picard has to go to a place where Captain James Kirk 
is, to get him to come back and to help rescue a planet. In the course of the argument that Picard uses to try to get Kirk to return, Kirk comes to a realization, and it goes like this. What's the name of that planet? Valarian 4? Pardon me, 3? That's right. I take it the odds are against us and the situation is grim. You could say that. If, you know, if Spock were here, he'd say it was an irrational, illogical human being for going on a mission like this. Sounds like fun. The battle we face is the battle the early church faced is not fun, except for some gallows humor kind of thing. It's grim. And everything is against us, just like a, a Dunkirk. But here is where the battle changes in our favor. You want to look at chapter 12, verse 5, the second part. The only weapon that Christians have to counteract evil at its worst. If all we had was our cunning and our strength and our mastery of language and our own determination, we would be defeated. John Stott says this. The situation looked extremely bleak, even hopeless. There appeared to be no possibility of Peter's escape. What could the little community of Jesus... Now, when he says little, it probably is more than 10,000 people, by the way. So it's little as compared to the whole city of Jerusalem, but it's not little, little. But just keep that in mind. And it's powerless, do against the might of Rome. What does verse 5, the second part, say? Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It seemed that the body of believers had remembered several things. The first thing was that when the disciples first faced persecution after Pentecost, they gathered the church and they prayed. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 30. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The prayers of the people then recognize the rage of the nations and the rulers, as Psalm 2 does. But it also recognizes in that prayer that God's power and will had decided beforehand what should happen. He God is in control. God was calling upon them, was called, called upon them to stretch out his hand and miraculously move in the situation. Sovereign Lord, move as you will. 
You've moved in the life of your son Jesus. Move again now. The second thing they remembered was, this is a different kind of battle than is usually fought. fought. There's three important passages in Scripture to remind us of this. First of all, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Ephesians 6 verse 12 in the middle of the great armor of God passage says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Luke 21, verse 23, uh, Jesus talking to the disciples at Gethsemane. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. With the experience of ten years of life as a church, dealing with the battles that they faced around them. They saw how they would have to fight and what kind of battle it was that they would fight. Despite the full power of the Roman emperor's representative Herod ranged against them, they were not to fight with earthly weapons. They would not work anyhow in this kind of war. Spiritual issues are at play here. And the only way to battle those issues is with spiritual weapons. The evil intent of Herod was backed up by the soldiers of the Tower of Antonia. Yes, but there was far more than that. Herod, as his grandfather before him, had puffed himself up in defiance of God. And as we shall see if we were to look into verse 20, he wanted to be God. So the only weapon that the church had but the church earnestly prayed for him. The only weapon that they had was prayer. Not some syrupy thing that you see on Facebook like, I'm praying for you, prayer changes things. No, we're not talking about that kind of prayer. But the sort of prayer that Elijah prayed in James chapter 5, which is from the heart, impassioned, never giving up, driving and full-throated. More than that, prayer... It's not just prayer saying something. It is focused towards one that we're calling upon to move. Prayer that we're speaking of here is not prayer to just into the ether, but is the power. It's calling upon the power of the Creator God of the universe who loves His Son Jesus and loves His church and loves to glorify His name. And so when we pray, we are calling to the one who's the most powerful of all to move. Elijah prayed and there was no rain from heaven for three years. He prayed again passionately and it rained again. The fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Not because the words are said, but because God answers. God answers. This is the kind of prayer that John Piper calls the wartime walkie-talkie that calls down supply from heaven to sustain God's people. It is the cry of recognition that only God can do some things and only He can win this 
this war and come to victory. There are strongholds that only the Spirit of God can break through, like the heart of that relative that has told you in no uncertain terms, get that Christian stuff away from me. Maybe it's the boss or professor that will not stop harassing you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the fact that you have a spouse who loves you dearly, but does not want to hear about your Lord, and maybe even is jealous of your love for Jesus Christ. In our day, it's a hard struggle to know how to raise our children when everything desires to corrupt them against our God. It may be the only weapon you have to deal with your besetting sin or addiction or mental health issue. The struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the things that pull you away from victory and the pursuit of the call of God and the prosperity of the church are not first and foremost physical things, typically earthly things, although they are in the story here. They are spiritual things. They are, they are the place where God must work. Only He can work. So He must be called upon to work. Against the full array of the might of Herod Agrippa I stands the church, fervently praying. It's the only weapon they have. I'm going to take a bit of a detour and notice what happened when they pray. What happened? There are some places in the Bible where the story that we read makes the Bible particularly exciting. Like the story of David and Goliath the delivery of Daniel from the mouth of lions, and what happens here to Peter. Follow along, if you would, verses 6 through 11. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the, in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing, was really happening. He thought it was, he was seeing a vision. Then he passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Here's the details of the story of Peter and the clutches of the king and the guards in the tower. I do find it odd, Peter's demeanor, as the story begins. If you notice, he's waiting for trial and execution the next day. He's about to be executed. And he's sleeping soundly between two guards. How in the world do you do that? How in the world do you sleep soundly knowing you're about to be put to death? That is absolutely incredible. And then we go on. In a dramatic effect, much like the angels appearing in Luke chapter 2, suddenly an angel of the Lord appears and a bright light shines in the room. 
Nothing like doing things for show, eh? Poor Peter is right out of it. So the angel nudges him in the ribs like some of you do to your spouse or your child or your roommate to get them out of bed. I kind of find this part funny because I almost had to do this this morning to somebody you might know very well. Groggy Peter needs the road style directions of the angel in order to get dressed and get ready to leave. Miraculously, the chains fall off and the two proceed past one set of guards, two sets of guards, and through the amazing self-opening, and that's the idea of the Greek word here, automate, iron gate of the bastion. Peter is so certain that this can't be happening that he believes he's seeing a vision. He is led down one more corner to another street when suddenly again, the angel leaves him. What's happening? Peter recognizes it instantly once he comes to himself. I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Here's what happened. The fervent prayer wielded as a weapon in the battle against the enemies of God and his Christ, in his case, brought the rescue from Herod and the dashing of the hopes of the anti-church people of the city of Jerusalem. The weapon of their warfare in this case was exceeding mighty to the breaking down of strongholds in the battle against evil personified in Herod against the people of God as the church of Jerusalem, the church the church here won as they wielded the weapon of prayer, of earnest prayer. They won because they prayed. And now you're going to tell me that the church of Jesus Christ of all ages has known that the weapon that we wield, as powerful as it is, does not always give us the tangible and visible answers that we long for. If you look back at the very start of this passage, what happens? James, one of the three in the inner circle of the apostles, is executed by Herod. And I expect that folks prayed for him, and in some cases earnestly. When I was a young man, just married, a missionary with the Wycliffe Bible translators named Chet Bitterman was abducted in Colombia by anti-Western guerrillas. Huge numbers of people from all across the world went to prayer for the release of this young father and servant of Christ. Months of prayer were offered before the throne of God for Bitterman's release. Guess what happened? He was found dead at the hands of his captors. As we grow in faith, we are regularly called on to wield our weapon in the warfare we fight. Sometimes we do not see the answer we desire. Why, Lord? What goes on here? God is working His purposes for His glory. But when I was young, I would ask, why didn't you save Chet Bitterman? Why not deliver so-and-so finally from cancer? Why not save my husband from his sin to trust you? Why? Well, I've got a new favorite song. It's called Even If. And the writer wrote it as he was watching the struggles day by day of his two-year-old son with type 1 diabetes. 
He was a singer-songwriter who went from place to place singing Christian songs. He's speaking of the trauma to his mind of the fact that there are not always answers to prayer that he wishes. There are times when I wonder about my chronic ailments personally and why I can't be delivered from them. There is another side to the glorious weapon that God gives us and that's what this song talks about. I'm going to read you the words of even if. They say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose. And right now, right now, I'm losing bad. I stood on this stage night after night reminding the broken it'll be all right. But right now, oh, right now, I just can't. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down, but what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am now? I know you're able, and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. They say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing. A little faith is all I have right now. But God, when you choose to leave a mountain unmovable, give me the strength to be able to sing, it is well with my soul. I know you're able, I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. You've been faithful, you've been good all of my days. Jesus, I will cling to you. Come what may, because I know you're able, I know you can. I know you're able, and I know you can, save through the fire and with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just said the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Even if you don't, my hope is you alone. The prayers that I offer to my dear Father, the Creator God of the universe, are expressions of my trust in Him. I hope in Him alone to do and to be and to hear and answer exactly as is necessary. That is, even if I don't like the answer, my hope is you, God, alone. Prayer is the only weapon we have, and God knows best how to respond to it every single heart-wrenching time. Did you hear that? God knows best how to respond to it every single heart-wrenching time. Finally, I want to look at uh, the last verses of this passage that I want to look at this morning. Verses 12 to 17. The pa this passage is often seen as funny because of the reaction of the folks in the home to Peter's arrival at the doorstep. This passage shows our usual reaction when the weapon accomplishes the task that we're looking for. Peter comes up to the doorway of the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, 
wielding their only weapon there at the home, praying for the release of Peter. The servant girl, Rhoda, hears the voice of Peter as he comes up to the entrance. For joy, and that's a good and natural response to answered prayer, she runs back to the others, proclaiming that Peter's at the door. Here's where the response is so typical, but so odd and so funny. Why is it when we have seen the Lord our God answer prayer amazingly, we doubt it, or as these folks did, call the first seers out of their minds, or some other things? What is it that causes some to say that it was a superstitious apparition and not Peter? I don't know, but I wonder if it has to do again with our lack of recognition of the boundaries of this battle and the power of God upon whom we call. I'm not saying in general. So many people, including me, trust God to do amazing things according to His will. But when the specific occasion comes that we are in, we may be unprepared for God to do what He says He will do. I call it a case of occasional, once in a while, unbelief or the lack of trusting as a reflex that he can and does answer prayers so powerfully that I can believe it every time without fail. It's like a person who's a skilled public speaker who in front of certain types of audiences gets nervous and it affects his ability to speak. Or like a dog who's learning to round up sheep following his master's instructions but missing or messing up a step or two or three as he learns. We are sinners who are not yet glorified so as to see the work of God as certain because of the last bits of our sin nature. We are creatures still awestruck by the impressiveness of the power and the glory of our God. We are not yet prepared to instinctively accept the amazing work of God as his calling card and to believe it wholeheartedly just like these folks in Mary's home on that night. Or many other circumstances provided in Scripture or seen in our own lives. So we've come to the end of a fascinating passage. The battle is real. Mistakes are very high. Nothing other than the triumph of God and His church against the forces of evil are, that are extant in this world are at stake. And we have seen the seemingly overwhelming power that evil has to accomplish its goals. We've seen that the only weapon that Christians have to counteract evil at its worst is prayer. Fervent prayer. And our usual reaction when this weapon is, accomplishes its task is shock and amazement and skepticism. That's what our passage is talking about. Now, you may wonder what happened to Herod as he thought he could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God to please the Jewish people and leaders of Jerusalem. Well, Herod was pretty surprised by the search of the entire Tower of Antonia and not finding Peter, and looking throughout the city as well. The little story doesn't stop there, because Herod uh, still has grand views of himself in verses 20 through 22. He's called a god by the terrified citizens of Tyre and Sidon. The passage says that because Herod did not immediately give praise to God, he was struck with worms and died soon afterwards. 
in the battle of the power of God versus the power of Herod and the power of evil, in the end, it was Herod who didn't stand a chance. Not the people of God. Herod was dealt with by God. Now, there's one more thing I need to mention. The problem that the Jews had with the church was that it was growing. Their anger was expressed against the life-changing conversions of people who turned away from a life of following the law and submitting to the yoke of bondage to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The call to Jews and Gentiles to turn away from their sin and to cry out for repentance and faith to Jesus Christ for his salvation overturned all they understood, held dear and would fight to the death to uphold, even with Herod Agrippa. The battle was enjoined because the sight of people coming to God through the work of a Galilean carpenter whom they had crucified was too much to stand for. Especially when they started to offer this access to the dogs and the Gentiles. Now, you are at the apex of this war today. If you are still without hope in Jesus Christ and you've never turned to Him for salvation... Jesus Christ and faith in Him is the only way to access the Father, as John 14, 6 says. And you must trust Jesus. The heart you have must be changed by a supernatural work of the Spirit of God for you to turn away from your sin and to trust Jesus. Many here are praying and will continue to pray that the Lord will answer prayer and work in your heart so that you too will cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you do that, the weapon of prayer has had its effect again. And the forces of the world and the flesh and the devil have been defeated. Will you cry out to him and trust him today?